My name is Paul, lovely to see you all, uh, and I'm part of the preaching team here at Sutton Vineyard. So if this is your first time with us, or actually if you've been here a while, if you're in the room, if you're online, or if you're catching up on the podcast, my favorite of all media, then let me extend my welcome to you. It's lovely to have you here. So we're in a series looking at some big questions, and today's question is, how can we believe the Bible in the light of modern science? And this question has been very important to me in my own journey as a Christian. I have had so many conversations with colleagues and friends over the years about questions like this one. And a few years ago, though, it kind of got under my skin. And I really started to wonder if I was on the wrong side of history. What if I was wrong about whether God exists? Whether the Bible is telling the truth? What if science had disproved the Bible? And so I gave, and I continue to give, the whole thing a lot of thought. So much so that I ended up studying this topic in a lot of detail with Edinburgh University for several years. So when I saw this question on the list for this series, I asked if I could take it because I absolutely love it. So the question itself, how can we believe the Bible in the light of modern science, was written by Steve our interim senior pastor, and he phrased it in quite a naughty way. And the reason I say that is it's a sort of load-bearing question. It's carrying an awful lot of weight and assumption with the way that it's phrased, and those assumptions are things we need to unpick. The question seems to suggest that you have to choose between the Bible and science, as though they're fundamentally incompatible. And maybe that's how you feel. That if you're a Christian, you have to reject scientific theories like evolution or the Big Bang. What would it mean if you did endorse them? Would that make you a bad Christian? Or perhaps you feel that being a Christian means quietly leaving your brain at the door. Perhaps you've spoken with friends or family for whom this is a problem, a reason to avoid church. The Christian beliefs are all just a bit silly. And nobody I know, me included, likes to look silly. Now, these big questions are big. And it's hard to cover all the ground that I'd like. We can study this question, like all of them in the series, for years without exhausting them. And so with that in mind, then, I hope mostly to tee us up for better conversations, both within our small groups and wherever we spend our weekdays, knowing that for many folks, both inside and outside of the church, this question is a particularly important one. Now, before I do any more talking, though, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to explore this question together this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us today. Amen. All right, oh, to the business end of this. Here's the plan. First, we're going to look at three words that can help us explore this question in a bit more detail. Who, why, and how. Second, we'll look at science versus the Bible. There, we're going to take a deeper look into the alleged conflict between the two. We'll look at the creation story found in the book of Genesis and the parting of the Red Sea found in the book of Exodus. Both of them are routinely brought up in science and the Bible kind of discussions. So I thought we should take a proper look at why that's the case 
and what we might say about each. Third, and to bring things to a close, we'll look at science and the Bible, where I'll talk about something I believe they have in common. First then, three words, who, why, and how. So this is just one way to kick off the discussion, but I, I hope it'll be a helpful one. Let's start with something really rather mundane. I took the opportunity to bring a ball, and I'm going to drop it. Ta-da! I know, it's big stuff. Now, what caused the ball to drop? See, it's really interesting. Yes, we can describe what happened in terms of the forces involved. And it's really interesting that that's the default we'll all go to. We have a set of rules about how objects are attracted to one another, and you can see I'm nerding out already, called Newtonian physics, after the chap who figured it all out, Sir Isaac Newton. We used Newtonian physics to put people on the moon. Go us! So we could say things like, the ball and the earth were attracted to one another, and that caused the motion. Or, we could go fancier. And we could talk about Einstein's general theory of relativity and the curvature of space-time. Nerd. <laughs> I mean, if you do that, I'm going to love you even more. Or, and here's the thing, we could say the ball dropped because you dropped it, Paul. Now, while that might sound like I'm being a bit smart, there is an important distinction, a long-standing one, a, an important distinction between the how and the who. The how is the physical forces that were involved. And the who, me. As it happens, there's a why, and it's because I'm explaining something. The who, the how, and the why are distinct aspects that we can use to describe what's going on. Each aspect is important, and each can be true independently somewhat of another. So how does that help us? It can help us ask the right kinds of questions when we look at passages in the Bible or when we consider the boundaries of science. The Bible is a book very much about the who and the why and not about the how, at least in a modern scientific sense. Science, for its part, can tell us a great deal about the how, but the who, which person is doing something and what they're like or the why, their motivations for doing something, isn't something science expresses in its theories. So, if in broad terms, science is concerned with providing information on the how, and the Bible isn't, what's the problem? Well, let's explore a couple of cases in the Bible where conflict usually arises. Next then, science versus the Bible. Here we're going to look at things like the creation story in Genesis, or miracles like the parting of the Red Sea. And when we look at those, there seem to be clashes over who's telling the truth. While the Bible doesn't offer scientific theories, it is still telling us things that happened in history, in the physical world. And those are things that science has a perspective on. What's more concerning for some is that the Bible looks to be telling us things that are physically impossible or which at least stretch the limits of scientific plausibility. Things for which science has no obvious explanation, no how, and where we can't just run an experiment. So let's think through Genesis and the creation story first. 
Then we'll look at the parting of the Red Sea because the way we think about each is rather different. You ready? Round one, Genesis and creation. Now, if you read the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 a particular way, creation could be understood as six consecutive 24-hour periods. And doing a bit of Bible maths, the earth would be about 4,000 years old. According to the scientific consensus, on the other hand, the universe started 13.7 billion years ago with a big bang, and the earth is four and a half billion years old. Surely then, the two are in conflict over the how. Yes, but only if you read the Bible that one particular way, literally. And we should ask the question whether it was the author's intention for us to read Genesis literally. We generally accept that when we read of God's mighty hand and an outstretched arm in Psalm 136, that we aren't talking about a physical hand or a physical arm. But what about Genesis? The author of Genesis isn't concerned to give a detailed scientific how, based on the way it starts. If science is right and the universe is 13.7 billion years old, then the Bible compresses most of that into in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's quite some editing. I remember my secondary school physics teacher telling me that he agreed with me that God created everything, but he said, it doesn't tell us how. I agree. Genesis 1 makes no mention of the modern scientific details of quantum vacuums, background radiation, and so on. As Steve said last week, the Bible is theology, how God and people relate, and not cosmology. For that matter, it is also not biology. And so it's not making a statement about evolution either. The author of Genesis, on the other hand, is very concerned with who God is, that he is the creator of all things, that he created us, that we were created for relationship with him, and that creation and we have a noble purpose. Genesis sits in stark contrast to all the other creation narratives of its day, where things like the sun, moon, and stars were gods to be worshipped in their own right. No, says Genesis. There's someone behind even those, the God of the Bible. Genesis is a response. It's a correction to the way of thinking in the ancient world at that time. It's not doing that correction by way of cosmology or biology, but theology how people relate to God and vice versa. And when you think about it, if the Bible was written as a science textbook, it would be very tricky, editorially speaking. Which how, which science would you actually use? Would you use the science and the scientific knowledge and terminology of 4,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, of today, or 100 years from now? How would Genesis 1 play out? Okay, to begin with, just write this down. You need to know you're on a giant oblate spheroid. And don't worry about the Big Bang and quantum theory. We'll get to that later on. But trust me, in a few thousand years, they're going to know this is the real deal. Now, clearly, I'm being flippant. But if we go to the parts of Genesis and treat them like a science textbook, then we've missed the point. As we know from our own experiences, God talks to us in our own time and in our own cultural setting, they simply didn't have modern scientific language. So why would the creation narrative in Genesis 1 include it? 
Now, none of this, by the way, is to deny that God could have created the universe in six consecutive 24-hour periods or less if he was so inclined. He could do that. He could also make it look like it was 14 billion years old in the process. I'm just not sure why he would. Or that it costs us anything to say that he chose to work through the natural processes and laws that he created in the first place. If we don't think of Genesis as telling us a modern scientific how in any literal sense, nothing important gets lost. It still conveys the truth it wants to. Who God is and what he's like. Who we are and who we were meant to be. None of that is diminished. Okay, let's move on. Round two. The parting of the Red Sea. Ooh, I like this one. If you're not familiar with it, God's people, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. God sent Moses to rescue them and bring them out to a land of their own. Pharaoh, the Egyptian ruler who had allowed the Israelites to leave, had a change of heart and decided to chase the Israelites down and, and enslave them once more. The pursuit culminates in this remarkable moment recorded in the book of Exodus where God parts the Red Sea for the Israelites to walk through and escape Pharaoh. Take a look. Exodus 14 verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And if you've ever watched the Prince of Egypt, you're like, wow, that's amazing. Because it is. It's cool. Well, what are we to make of this then? Exodus is different to Genesis because it's a different book in the Bible addressed to a different audience for a different purpose. This part of the Bible has more of an air of historical record. So what about the who, the why, and the how? Well, the who is God, essentially. The Bible is attributing this moment to him in a particular way. The why is to allow the Israelites to leave Egypt. And the how? Ah, well, now the how is particularly interesting because the Bible says that God used a strong east wind all night to drive back the waters. God appears to be intervening in the laws of nature in a miraculous way. It raises an important question. Is God allowed to do that? Is God allowed to intervene in the laws of nature? And if so, what does that even mean? Well, it comes down, really, to what we think God's involvement with nature looks like. The Bible says that God is the creator of all things. You get that from various places in, in the Bible, most obviously Genesis. But you also see it in the Old Testament book of Job as well. Big fan of this. Now, God asks Job if he's the one who knows the intimate details of everything in nature, because we are to infer God absolutely does. Check this out. Job 38 verses 4 to 7. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Not sure I'd want to be Job at that point. 
But that's not everything. The Bible also says that God is the sustainer of all things. You get that from places like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 in the New Testament. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that word universe, if you go back and look at the Greek, it's kind of like an everything, like all of everything. Okay, but how should we think of God sustaining the universe? Well, there's a view of God that thinks of him like a sort of cosmic mechanic or an engineer tinkering with his machine from the outside. Sure, he made it, but it's mostly on rails. Occasionally, he'll give it a metaphorical whack with a supernatural hammer. Or maybe he's more like a watchmaker where the watch is ticking away on its own moment by moment, but it just needs a little adjustment here or there. There's an emotional and a relational distance to both of those pictures that is, I think, rather unhelpful. The biblical picture is rather more like a potter with their clay than it is a mechanic tinkering with an engine or a watchmaker with a timepiece. Old Testament prophet Isaiah uses the picture language of a potter in several places, as does New Testament writer Paul in Romans 9. But let's, let's look at one example just to get a sense of it. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. You, we are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And if you've ever seen an experienced potter, you'll know it's a very hands-on involved experience. The potter continually crafts the clay with skill, precision, intricacy, care, consideration, and intention. From all this, we can see that God is intimately connected to the physical universe, sustaining it and able to influence it. But that also means things aren't so clear-cut here. At what point is God doing things in normal mode, sustaining things? And at what point is it more special than that, like the parting of the Red Sea? Sure, it says he used a strong east wind all night, but what was he doing for the rest of the time? This question gets far more mind-bendy and taxing when we start talking about our free will as well. Who's in charge then and to what degree? And for what it's worth, we have very similar challenges understanding how things like our emotions, thoughts, ideas, and intentions, all seemingly non-physical things, how they interact with our very physical brains. These are big questions, after all, and there are no quick and easy answers. But in any case, if we believe that God is sustaining the universe moment by moment, willing it forward, then the distinction between these more mundane moments and the miraculous become far harder to distinguish. He's not intervening prodding the machine from the outside, giving it a whack with the hammer, it's much more intricate and nuanced than that. So what's the problem? We haven't got to that yet. What's the problem? Here we go. Edge of your seat stuff. A critical assumption for science is methodological naturalism. I know, don't, don't all get excited at once. I mention this not because I like the term, but because this is the problem, or this is where the focus point will come. Methodological naturalism applies to science, and it just means that when doing experiments, 
scientists assume that everything taking place is only ever subject to natural laws and processes. No outside involvement is expected, shall we say, by God or anyone else. Now, for the most part, that assumption works just great because nature seems to follow laws. But when that generally useful assumption of how to do day-to-day -day science, methodological naturalism, I'm going to keep saying it, is extended to encompass everything in existence, then it precludes the idea that God can be involved with nature. In other words, we quietly moved. I don't know if you noticed it, but we quietly moved from questions of believing the Bible or modern science into more philosophical grounds. And that matters because the way that we look at the world, our worldview, sometimes our philosophy, is generally a collection of things we assume. It's the things we mostly take for granted. Things that seem so obvious to us, we might even forget to mention them. For example, the fact that the earth is a giant ball. Who wouldn't believe that? Nowadays, it's just assumed. But people didn't always believe that. Assumptions matter. So, what assumptions might be at play with the parting of the Red Sea? Why might that cause conflict? Those of us who call ourselves Christians are likely to assume something like the view I outlined earlier. That God created and sustains everything, including the laws of nature. So, he can probably do whatever he sees fit. If he wants to make a strong east wind blow all night, why not? What's the problem? Someone else, someone who maybe describes themselves as an agnostic, someone who doesn't know one way or the other if God exists, or someone who describes themselves as an atheist, someone who believes that God, believes that God doesn't exist, will bring different assumptions, different presuppositions to this discussion. They may well say that it's impossible for it to have happened like this because, well, God probably doesn't exist. They may be assuming that methodological naturalism applies more generally than just during scientific inquiry. The fascinating thing about the parting of the Red Sea is that you could chalk it up to a statistical anomaly, a weird weather day, a fluke. Some would look at the parting of the Red Sea and say just that. I mean, in terms of the scientific explanation, we got it. We can offer the physical description of the wind. It's strong, it's easterly, it's all nightly, it's pushing the Red Sea asidely. The Bible is not saying that this stuff is happening despite the natural world, far from it. It's saying it's happening through it, a strong east wind. But it's also saying that behind that unusual strong east wind, there's a who, the God of the Bible, the God who created all things, working in space and time for a particular purpose with a why, to save his people. And if God is interacting with nature, then we should expect to see physical effects like a strong east wind. What else would we expect? The Bible is telling us something important that science alone simply can't capture. A who and a why. Science can't tell us those things because it doesn't typically deal with motivations. And because science deals with nature and God is supernatural. Whether we find all of that palatable isn't so much a question of science versus the Bible. So much as our worldview or our philosophy and how we assume reality works.
So let me, let me summarize all of that. Where do we get to? Uh, okay, first, if we read the Bible in particular ways, like choosing to interpret Genesis 1 and 2 as literally describing six consecutive 24-hour periods 4,000 years ago, then there are clashes with modern science. Now, we are free to believe that God did, just, did do just that because ultimately we believe that he could create a universe from nothing in whichever fashion he chooses. We can resolve these clashes, though, if we avoid treating the Bible like a science textbook and treat it in line with what its original intention seems to be. In other words, we need to read the books of the Bible as what they are and not what we might wish them to be. And I would also suggest that to do so doesn't diminish the Bible's truthfulness one bit. Second, it is an assumption, a philosophy no less, to believe that everything in existence can be explained by natural processes and laws alone. But that's also extending the boundaries of scientific inquiry, extending methodological naturalism to include all of existence. It stops being science and starts being philosophy and a philosophy that we call naturalism. And that really changes the conversation because we have to look at what we assume and why. The Bible doesn't offer any scientific theories because it's just not in the business of doing that. But it does offer a different view. It says that God is both the creator and sustainer of the universe, the God of everything that exists. And that implies that he is involved with every moment of the universe in nuanced and complex ways. When we ponder moments in the Bible, like the parting of the Red Sea, these more historical books and historical moments, we often see the creator God crafting his creation, working for the good of his people through nature. Not like a mechanic or a watchmaker, but like a potter with their clay. That's not at odds with science. Not if God is the who that sustains the universe, but it is at odds with naturalism. Before we're done with this part of the talk, let me recommend a couple of books to you in case you want to take a look in a bit more detail. The first is Steve's book, How to Read the Bible Well, What It Is, What It Isn't, and How to Love It, again. Got the, got the feel of it right, yeah? Okay, cool. That covers more about what I tapped into when looking at the book of Genesis. The second is where the conflict really lies, science, religion, and naturalism. And that's by Alvin Plantinga. And both of those go into far more detail than I'm able to this morning. So if you find yourself wanting to delve deeper into some of this stuff, and you really should because it's so much fun, then these are a great place to start. Both very readable and very good. So that's science versus the Bible. And I hope you can take what I've talked about there and explore it more if you're interested and maybe apply it to other parts of the Bible. Who, why, and how. I also hope that your heads aren't hurting I bet that chocolate in the break feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? Yeah, we're like, he talked about methodological naturalism and stuff. But look, I didn't want to leave things there. In the last few minutes of this talk, I wanted to share something more with you, something a bit more personal, I suppose. As I've sat back on this question of science and the Bible over the years, I've concluded that, the, that science and the Bible are not only compatible as they are, but that for me at least, they have something important, really important in common. So finally then, science and the Bible. Now, I recently watched a Netflix documentary with my son. It was called Black Holes. 
the edge of all we know. And I know what you're thinking, Team Lewis knows how to party. <laughs> yeah, you know it. This documentary followed uh, some scientists over the course of a decade, and they managed to take a photo of a supermassive black hole. Ah, oh, so cool. And it's so far away. It's in the center of this really distant galaxy. It's 54 million light years away. I'm like, how? That's a ridiculous distance to try and wrap your head around. You take a particle of light, a photon, and you let it zip off at the speed of light, 671 million miles an hour, for 54 million years. That's how far away this galaxy is. The staggering thing is they actually managed to take the photograph. Watching this documentary, though, about taking the photograph of just one black hole reminded me of the vastness of God's creation. There is so much to explore. And I personally think it's awesome that God made a universe for us to explore. I sometimes tell people that, like any loving parent, God gives things to his children that he knows they'll enjoy. Nature and creation are one such gift. Some of us love to make paintings of it. Some to write poetry about it. Some to write songs about it. And some of us love to smash particles together in a large hadron collider just to see what happens. <laughs> and some like to take photos of supermassive black holes. God's big enough to make a universe to accommodate us all. At the limits, science is an adventure. A relentless pursuit of ultimate reality. That ultimate reality is not a something. It's a someone. It's the God who made everything. From the dawn of time, every atom, every particle, every planet, star, galaxy, every asteroid, black hole, dust cloud, meteor, every rock, quark, photon, lepton, every blade of grass, tree, and crashing wave has been under his watchful gaze. Like the mind behind this vast, intricate universe is just, I don't know. I like the words. It genuinely stuns me into awed silence. The Bible, like science, also points beyond itself to the same creator God who invites us into an adventure, a relentless pursuit of the ultimate relationship. He created all of this, all of us, for a relationship with him. That's what the books like Genesis are telling us. And when I consider the breadth and depth of the world around me, let alone the enormity of the visible universe, I, I echo the words of David in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Why would God care about me in all that vastness? Maybe you feel the same. Here's the amazing part. He replies, the God of the universe replies, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31, three. Or again, in the, one of the most famous verses of the Bible, John 3, 16, here's Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is not some distant figure outside of time and space. He is intimately connected with his creation. So much so that he chose to step into it 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus to bring us back into a relationship with him. 
It's a monumental thing to grasp, but try it on for size. The Bible is saying that the God of this incomprehensibly large, outrageously extravagant universe looks at you, at me, at all of us. And his deepest desire is for us to know him and walk with him. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That is as true for us today as it was when God first said it. And when I really stop and embrace that, it also brings me to a stunned, awed silence. The thing that science and the Bible have in common for me is that they are both signposts to the deepest reality. The God who loves his creation, who loves us, who loves me. We can and should enjoy all that science can uncover about creation. And we can and should enjoy all that the Bible can tell us about God. But what God wants for us, even more than that, is to actually know him firsthand in the way that he already knows us. That's what he invites us to from the moment of creation until today.